0: Hello. Welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by percussionist and composer Adam Holmes. Last year, Adam released his first full-length album, Compartments. Stemming from his desire to write music for percussion instruments small enough to carry in a suitcase, Compartments is a fascinating listen that combines minimalistic instrumentation with live computer processing to create a sound that is both tactile and otherworldly. Over the course of our conversation, Adam and I discussed the technical process behind compartments, how he came to be a classical percussionist, and his thoughts on the state of performing new music live. Thanks for listening. So you've said that you're, you're still teaching under these uh, the quarantine?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of what we're doing right now, which is great because I actually like have decent income coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some, some kids were just like, no way, or I guess their parents more. were not into the idea of it, but yeah, basically a whole lot of time Skyping with like six year olds trying to get them to play piano, which is not ideal. The results are mixed. (laughs) I feel like I'm getting used to it a little bit. Yeah, for some, I'm just like, y'all are totally wasting your money, but I'm not gonna, you know, tell them that.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. That's not ultimately too different than teaching from what I can uh, pick up from the way that you described it previously, you know. Ultimately, it is kind of like up to the kid to take it seriously. For
1: sure, yeah. And some of them are like, you know, almost more into it than ever, maybe, just because Hmm. they're so bored. But... Yeah, there there are some, you know, like, like I've, you know, we've talked about before that like shouldn't be in lessons to begin with, honestly. And then when we're like trying to do it via Skype or whatever, with like a not always amazing internet connection, it's just like, it's a mess. But you know, it's like a 30 minute crashing train and then it's fine. (laughs) I was gonna say it's a little silly, but like, it's kind of like, I feel like I have one of the better situations out of anybody that I know. So not complaining.
0: I've got a few friends who do like musical theater as their main source of musical income and they're just completely fucked. You know, there's this has really thrown a lot of the the economics of like live performance into, you know, complete disarray and then it's weird like which musicians are are still able to stay productive and get stuff done and like you know, still get mm-hmm. paid. Like you know, it seems like producers and more digital or, like, composers or, like, solo artists are are really well set up to do this. And then anyone whose primary thing is, like, playing a quote-unquote real instrument, you know, (laughs) in front of audiences is, like, completely screwed.
1: Oh, yeah. And, like, I mean, yeah, obviously, like, all of my shows pretty much, there's, like, one that isn't confirmed, but it will for sure be canceled through June is all off. Mm, so. So, I mean, that's a big, like, noticeable loss of income, but, you know, I I teach usually, I mean, I'm always teaching, and sometimes there's, like, very little performance income, just depending on, you know, how things are going. It doesn't have to be a pandemic, but, yeah, I mean, I know for me, just not having access to my rehearsal space is such a bummer. I'm actually sitting on my drum throne for my Alesi's E-kit, which is something to practice on, Mm -hmm. but it's
0: a I'm, I'm very jealous yeah. personally like I I don't have anything but a practice pad so I mean I guess I could just get like my Instagram you know paradiddle chops up or something but
1: right it's
0: not the same you know mm-hmm.
1: I, I I follow a few drummers that do those like minor pads have you seen those
0: no I don't think I know those
1: they're like these little black and red pads that fit really well on like cymbal stands and stuff so I've seen people do uh-huh. like five-piece kit setups through that which is cool a little louder yeah i'm super lucky to have the electric kit at all it's just like you ride on a cymbal for long enough that's just like hard rubber and it's just kind of deeply upsetting (laughs) and eventually it kind of hurts your hand a little bit too there's no rebound so you're just like cranking it out on this like stiff rubber plate and yeah it's a it it feels silly (laughs) just through and through
0: uh, do you have any like good sounds set up for us so that at least you're not hearing like rinky dink presets or
1: I just use the first one on it, which is like the most standard, like rock sounding kit. It's a, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. do a whole lot of silly stuff to it. It's like, I don't use any of the other presets on the whole kit. Cause it's all just like eight Oh eight hip hop fun time or something. And, uh, <laughs> it does sound pretty ridiculous, which can be fun, but I'm not using those. Yeah, the sounds in there are fine. I guess I go crazy a little bit with, um, like, the sensitivity of it. You know, it's, like, all the pads yeah. have, like, three different sounds, you know, depending on where you're hitting it. So, I mean, granted, my kit is definitely on the low-end side for the e-kit market. So, you know, I got what I paid for, which is totally fair. But, yeah, that's the thing that drives me crazy. Like, sometimes I actually sound better than I know I'm playing you know?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Like
1: it's a little bit too forgiving. It'll make like, yeah, it'll make all your strokes sound like really even. And I'm just like, I can feel my own hands and I know I just played that lick really terribly, but because it can't pick up on all the different, very slight inconsistencies, it's just like, yeah, man, you're doing great. And uh, so I'm always just like, yeah, don't kid yourself. You sound bad.
0: Do you feel like you'd get like a more realistic response if you did it hearing back just how it sounds on the, uh, the rubber itself, and it's like mesh heads. I'm assuming for the drums. It is mesh yeah. heads.
1: Yeah, actually, sometimes or often now. I practice with one of my headphones off, so it's like I get like a little bit mm. of actual drum sound just for like the fulfillment of it, and then I hear what my hands actually sound like. Yeah, the mesh heads also aren't doing me any favors as far as like an accurate rebound. You know, they don't give you very good bounce. So sometimes I do pat myself on the back a little bit and say it's all okay, but. <laughs> You know, I, before like shit started getting really wild here, I went to my rehearsal space and just grabbed some stuff to bring home and I did not think to grab like an actual nice kick pedal. So I'm using like the Elise's kick pedal that came with this kit and it is oh, no. so bad and just like, oh, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating. Maybe it'll make, maybe it's like, I don't know, tough love. I'm going to like get way better because I'm playing on such a terrible pedal, but oh, it's like, it makes me actually mad
0: sometimes. <laughs> The th- I used to have an electronic kit when I was living in Chicago. I had sort of the reverse problem where I would like crank the mm-hmm. the tightness of the mesh head so much that it would be like bouncing like practically out of my hands just to like get mm-hmm. something out of it, which was nice. But then I, I feel like it's sort of overcompensated and didn't actually – the electronic th- stuff, it's like – it's definitely great for – compared to like actually having a drum set in your house in a city like that would just Mm -hmm. it's just impossible but it does kind of force you into some weird idiosyncratic technique that doesn't always apply at least in my experience i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah no absolutely
0: but you've been doing some other stuff staying busy too i saw that you put up like a sample kit for for your other percussion uh, that you've been recording
1: yeah so i've been doing a lot of sample libraries just for like something to do actually like I think it's like early February maybe I recorded a ton of different samples in my studio and just had them in one like logic session but I hadn't taken the time to go back and edit all of them some I had done but there was like I don't even remember I think there are like 14 libraries that I've finished now and I'm like just starting to run out of stuff I've already recorded but that was cool it was nice to like actually like keep myself occupied with something and I'm just kind of sending them around to whoever wants them. Yeah. And I, I want to sample more while I'm here, but of course I'm low on instruments. And like, one thing I really want to build is, um, a library for like blowing over bottles and like get like a chromatic set of that. The issue with that is that that sound makes my dog go insane. So like, as soon as I blow over a bottle, my dog just starts screaming at me and I'm just like, well, you ruined that take. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Get a sample of the dog in there too. You know, I
1: might, am I might just like chromatic dog sample samples maybe? Like de- yeah, pet against the grain, be like oh, that's a fun sound.
0: So this is something that you, the sample uh, kits and libraries, that was something you were planning on doing before all of this uh, this lockdown happened. What what made you start uh, mm-hmm. deciding to do that?
1: So I have a I have a blog on my website that's just like a extremely nerdy info page about how to write for percussion, mostly for like you know quote unquote classical composers. Just because I, I that's a lot of the medium I work with is like music that's being written and for like mostly, you know, concert halls right now. And a lot of people, you know, on just like have various questions about different parts of every instrument. But, you know, obviously percussion is my specialty. And I feel like working with composers is something that I'm both pretty good at, but also I really like doing it. Like a lot of friends will send me parts to like give them feedback and it's just something I'm happy to do. So I started posting a lot of writings on that on my website and then the idea was to get a patreon going to like sort of just keep the help me pay for like my domain name and stuff and one of the reward (laughs) tiers was the sample libraries which this still might happen but you know everything feels everything that I've had planned in any way just feels kind of thrown off by the pandemic you know everyone myself included is kind of like second guessing everything they're working on and like is now really the right time to do X, Y, Z? So I just, I, you know, kind of like threw up on social media that I was doing those things and it was like, you know, pay what you can. And some people have given me like pretty generous sum of money. Other people have given me zero dollars, which is totally okay. Like I'm not, like I I mean it when I say pay what you can, but initially it was supposed to be like a monthly subscription thing where I'd send out like a new library each month and I was going to have like 12 done before I announced it just so I could have like a year's worth all backed up and wasn't ever like panicking, trying to get more done. But yeah, just, uh, yeah, everything feels weird now as far as like focus on this project I'm doing or something like, yeah, it's really weird waters in that regard.
0: You were planning on putting this up as like a Patreon, but it was kind of an extension of the more educational process of, uh, of educating other composers that you'd been doing on your website, on your blog. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, um, you know, some of it's pretty basic. It's all definitely very opinionated and subjective. Like, someone could read it and be like, I think that's bullshit. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's fair. Like, <laughs> I'm not upset by it. It's mostly just, like, I don't know, like, it's, like, the impetus of a much larger conversation about classical music. But a lot of people are really awesome artists but not might, know, might not know really, like, a basic things about notation because they don't have, like, an institution backing them to give them lessons into something. So... So that page on my website is just like, you know, a free thing people can click on. I'm not saying it's like a substitution for private lessons or a degree or something. But, you know, I'm trying to be a good socialist here by just having some free resources up. Uh, a few articles get clicked on mm-hmm. like several times a day, which for me is a lot, you know.
0: <laughs> that, I really like that idea of like democratizing musical knowledge specifically like academic musical knowledge. It reminds me of this one YouTuber uh, philosophy tube who got like his degree (laughs) in philosophy and then just went on YouTube and just started doing philosophy lessons for free for Mm -hmm. people um, because it was like right after like this like spike in costs for universities in England where he's from. So it strikes Mm -hmm. me as kind of like a a similar leftist musical project because it is just like the barrier for entry can be, Pretty high, and you know i I went to music school too, but mm-hmm. that's how I know that the barrier to to entry is pretty high for a lot of people, so I think that's like a very noble cause. I think that's really cool,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, I've sat in a lot of like classes that it's like a semester long thing that you know, especially like a private institution, you're paying however many thousands of dollars just for that class, and I'm like, this could be really you know the old like this could have been done over email, <laughs> like it honestly could have <laughs> you know. So yeah, it's like kind of, I don't know, it's, yeah, definitely sort of just like making it open source, accessible, whatever. Uh, That definitely means a lot to me. I'm very like jaded about musical academia, so this is like a little response in that way, I guess.
0: I'm assuming then that you did go to a conservatory or some kind of more accredited music school?
1: Yeah, I did my undergrad at NYU. Uh, That's why I moved to New York Uh, is to go there and then I stayed I mean obviously I still live here in Brooklyn but I did my master's at Manus is the classical division of the new school Uh, and that one's the one that's technically a Mm. conservatory and yeah that was a I I don't think I actually ever wanted to go to grad school I think it seemed like everyone else was doing it and so I was like oh if I don't do that too I I messed up and then I went to grad school and I was just so bored for two years (laughs) I had a couple of teachers that were actually like amazing, but you know, I could have studied with them privately, just like paying out of pocket to a couple individuals rather than, you know, working to get by in like a much larger institution that I was just like, I, I don't know. I feel like I mostly sat around for two years having to turn down gigs because I had school. Then I did like preparing for said gigs.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the
1: only real benefit for me coming out of getting a master's was like when I'm, you know, parents are looking to like get their kids music lessons they're like oh that guy has a master's degree he should teach our child which is hilarious because I know so many dumb people with master's degrees and so many smart people with way less education than that so those are really silly titles that we validate way too often unfortunately
0: how'd you make the decision to go to NYU for undergrad to begin with
1: so this is funny I think is um I Wanted to go to NYU because I wanted to play drums on Broadway. I was really into oh, musical really? theater in high school. I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> yeah, that is not my stance on Broadway anymore. No disrespect for people that are super into <laughs> musicals, but like I cannot get through a musical anymore. Um, I loved doing it in high school. It was like this one huge production that my school would do every year. It was a really big public school in Texas, and our theater was like a thousand people. It would sell out like four shows, and it was super inspiring and fun. And so I wanted to like try to do that with my life. And then I moved to New York and started doing, you know, every like student production that I could get into basically. And I quickly just started to hate it so much. Yeah. So I very quickly uh, had to look for something else to put my energy into because that was a, uh, not my cup of tea for sure.
0: What made you flip so hard on musical theater? What about that experience? I think
1: my issue with musical theater is just that you like, it's so repetitive. You know what I mean? Like I remember Mm. being in school and doing a production of Man of La Mancha, which is just, I think an objectively boring musical. Like there's some that I'll like listen to an argument that it's a good time. And there's some musicals that I still like, but Man of La Mancha is terrible. And I had a really boring like glockenspiel and bass drum part or whatever. And it got to the point where like I knew the show so well That, you know, I could like hear one word and like stand up and play two glockenspiel notes and go back to reading my book, which is kind of cushy and nice, but it was so boring for me. And that was, you know, like a one week run at school. So like there are people that have been doing shows like Phantom of the Opera for decades. And I just Mm -hmm. I know that I couldn't, you know, even though the financial security of actually being a Broadway musician, with the exception of right now, is pretty enviable. I was like, I can't do this with my life or my brain or anything.
0: And so where did you end up diverting your energy to after you made that decision?
1: Uh, Initially I actually decided I wanted to write music for film. Uh, I had a bunch of friends in the film school there and the idea of having original music by anyone is even someone like with zero qualifications like me was super appealing. So I started doing a lot of those and it was fine. But then I I got rid of... I got away from that also after a while just because I slowly started to get annoyed with the people I was working with, which I don't think was even their fault necessarily. I think I probably just wasn't cut out for it in some respects. And then I had not like an argument, but a creative disagreement with a really good friend. And that like stressed me out emotionally. And I was like, oh, I don't want that to be something that happens, you know. So I, I, after like a year... I stopped doing that, too. I'm actually working on one right now for an old friend from that scene. But, um, yeah, overall, I was just wasn't into it. And so I pivoted again. And in case you're wondering, yeah, this caused multiple like existential crises, you know. And at that point, that was probably like my junior year of college. I started falling into like the realm of like, contemporary classical music.
0: And was that something that you were interested in prior to that switch? Or was that sort of a, a newer discovery in your life?
1: Uh, I it was gradually coming on like I remember the first time I heard you know quote-unquote contemporary music or new music there's so many really annoying titles for it, it was in high school and I, it, it, it was like kind of a thorny piece by Zanakis who's a composer it's not always easy on the ears but you know very very popular still Uh, he's not alive anymore but still gets played a lot and I was like this is the worst thing I've ever heard and I was just kind of like that means that any new music in this realm is bad Uh, which is super ignorant to think but I definitely wrote that off for a little while and I was in like a classical program so I was looking at more orchestral stuff but part of the program was very chamber music based and most percussion chamber music or I guess all percussion chamber music is within the last century and oftentimes even more recent than that. So that Mm. was kind of like the impetus for that, gradually getting more into that because also that was where I could collaborate with my peers the most, both my friends who were performers and then also people in the composition program.
0: So you got into it mostly by doing it then?
1: Yeah, for sure. It wasn't, I mean like the, the music I was playing at first at least was not optional it was like this is your assignment show up on Thursday for rehearsal and, and have your part learned but you and you know it's like regardless of how most people felt about the music we still had like a high standard for ourselves so there was a lot of you know late night practice or long practice whatever just spending a lot of time in a room together uh, and it wasn't all super serious you know there was it was like it was just like hanging out but you happen to be playing an instrument. With fully notated music in front of you the whole time so yeah it just became like something that demanded a lot of my time and I decided to really lean into it
0: was there a particular piece or a composer that sort of was able to remove that initial prejudice that you had towards new music or was it yeah, more of a gradual sure. process
1: I mean, I guess both would be true. I mean, I remember when I was a senior in high school, I think, the youth orchestra I played in played a John Adams piece. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like, maybe I was wrong. And then in college, there was just a ton of Steve Reich programs. And I have mixed feelings on Steve Reich uh, for a lot of reasons. But he writes some really fun percussion music. Yeah, he writes a lot of percussion music. A lot of it's really fun. It doesn't require a conductor, which is a cool thing about new chamber music which I had not experienced really at all up to that point is that you know there's Hmm. much less of like a lecturer student vibe or something it's like you're all working on it together and you have a coach that will listen to you and give you feedback but no one's like waving their arms in front of you you know it's much more it's much closer to playing in a rock band than it is playing in an orchestra at that point so interesting I, I remember some friends of mine we had like our own little group and you know we don't play together anymore it was never meant to be like our career but we still Talk like every day. It's awesome. Uh, We learned Steve Reich's piece, Mallet Quartet, which is this piece for two marimbas and two vibraphones. And we just decided that we wanted to get really, really good at it. And we agreed, like, it was, we were breaking for the summer and we're like, okay, when we get back, everyone should have their part totally memorized at tempo. And that's like really hard music to memorize. It's hard to play in general, it's really unforgiving, but memorizing it was definitely out of the ordinary. So we just kind of, you know, you helped each other raise our own bar uh, and get really, I think, really good at various things. Uh, so and then, you know, we ended up playing a ton of different music over the years that we were playing together. And we kept that one in our back pocket. We could kind of pull out whenever. But yeah, that was like the first one where I was like, oh, OK, this is like somewhere I feel really at home.
0: You mentioned that it has a similarity to like less academic music ensembles like rock bands or jazz groups or something along those lines did you have experience outside of the like orchestral or chamber percussion world that made that appeal to you like did you play in rock bands in high school and all that
1: i did play in rock bands in high school which is something I always laugh out a little bit, not because I shouldn't have been doing it, just, you know, the bands were really bad. Um, (laughs) So it's fun to listen. It's fun to listen to those. Uh, But, you know, my band in high school is with like three of my closest friends. You know, that's definitely like a really special thing. Like, you know, I think all musicians are very much like, I just love making music, which is, you know, it's true. I do. But if I'm doing it with a bunch of people that I don't like, it's not that great of an experience. Like if I'm, you know, hired to play a gig and everyone's just kind of a wet blanket or worse an asshole then i'm just like i don't know music's not that great or it's not good enough to be here doing this so and you know also like when you're in orchestra like you know we're in the back of the if you're a percussionist you sit in the back you talk whatever but it's all very hush hush and proper and in our chamber rehearsals it was much like there was a lot of dicking around for sure and like you know, just being able to speak out a full volume is a nice liberation uh, from a lot of <laughs> academic music settings. I will say though, I, I not don't, I don't. I mean, I don't think I am alone in feeling that that similarity is the same. But I do think that where the big like divide is is like, even though I feel like chamber music is much more adjacent to rock playing or whatever, I don't feel like people are embracing that very much. It's like the venues that are deemed appropriate for this sort of music are so firmly set in stone, and I just, like, really, really don't like that part of classical music. Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes it's just like, yeah, we need a grand piano to play this piece, but, you know, that DIY space doesn't have any piano, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense, but there's just very little effort that I see personally of people trying to get out of, you know, concert halls or newer spaces that were very specifically designed for that type of music, uh, which is, I don't know, it's Mm -hmm. a huge bummer. It's definitely... I feel like the scene as a whole could be much more progressive without that much effort.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like the the conversation about uh, making classical music broadly defined more accessible is usually oriented around bringing people into classical spaces rather than the reverse of taking mm-hmm. classical music to non-classical Definitely. music spaces. You know, like there's definitely uh, examples like my parents go to like the Brooklyn Public Library to hear like string quartets and stuff like that. But even that Mm -hmm. feels they're the same audience that would be going to you know Lincoln Center or Carnegie Hall or what have you. Anyway, Uh, I think that your point about like if I were to go to like just say Trans Picos for example, and there's, there's like a string quartet like that would be surprising and Mm -hmm. i don't know probably more exciting than uh the idea of going to some place that i'm not comfortable going if, if i'm like joe rock fan you know
1: yeah for sure and i mean you know this like the classical spaces are usually very based on having a captive audience you know like you mentioned carnegie hall you go sit down there and it's like you're in your seat and you might be an asshole if you stand up at any point to like go to the bathroom or something which is mm. something I hate a lot, but like, you know, I have, I have some experience of doing new music in these other spaces. Like there's this group sandbox percussion, they're a quartet based in Brooklyn, super nice dudes, like remarkably good players. And I've joined them for a couple of shows playing a piece by Steve Reich. It's just called drumming. Uh, it needs nine percussionists and a few, like a couple singers and stuff. So they have to hire out uh but we did it two years in a row at House of Yes in Bushwick. Have you ever been there?
0: I haven't been there but I've heard of it.
1: It's a it's a it's a wacky space and like the first year we did it it was a little toned still super cool the second year the first year kind of went all out. There were a bunch of aerialists performing like while we were <laughs> playing this piece which is just like hour and a half or close to hour and a half long super like zoning out just like rhythms like you know straight rhythms forever. To the point where, like, when something new enters, people would start, like, yelling because it was so surprising. But, you know, like, (laughs) there were no chairs set out. We were, like, in the middle of the room. The singers for the piece actually had harnesses on and were, like, flipping through the air and shit. There was, like, MIDI light controls on some of the instruments. So, like, you'd hit a drum and, like, a light would change. And you hit so many drums in that piece that it it was probably a bit much. But I loved (laughs) it. Like, people were even, like, let's do, like, a cool rock show out of this, or you know, rock whatever. And you know, that actually, that year we were playing right before there was going to be a boiler room session there, like the DJ live stream
0: thing. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So
1: a lot of people were at the show, not exactly for us, but the reception was fantastic. You know, like people seemed really, really into it. And, you know, to be fair, I think like drum heavy music might be a little bit more easy to get on board with than. You know we mentioned string quartet like that can maybe be a little bit awkward in some spaces or for some audiences but yeah i mean it's so possible i don't exactly understand why more people don't do it you know because i don't know what that arrangement was with house of of yes but like a lot of classical concerts you have to rent the space and the fees can get insane and then like no one makes that much money off of ticket sales so i'm like why do you need this like so-so hall that you paid fifteen hundred dollars for when you could do like The dive bar for free right
0: totally yeah i mean i think part of it is it's weird that i'm drawing to a more recent example but it's like the winton thing of art where it's like (laughs) you just put stuff into a museum and say like it ended it's done now we just replicate it forever yes and it sucks because like the best stuff like when i listen to like a shostakovich string quartet like as a metalhead i hear so (laughs) much similarity between mm-hmm. like that and like some like gore Guts song or something. And it's just a shame that like all of this like really great music that in its time was probably like hitting way harder and like had this more lively engagement with its audience has been reduced to this situation where, as you said, you're an asshole if you stand up and go to the bathroom or it has to be presented in this like exact way that kind of sucks the right. life out of the experience of listening to music at all.
1: Yeah, it, Totally. Yeah. And it's like, I just don't, it's such a small step to take forward, I feel like, because a lot of people are like really focused in on like the modern approach to this. And the usual step that is taken is, uh, you know, commissioning new music, oftentimes by the younger people and stuff. And a lot of people make a nice effort to like be diverse in their programming. And that's all really great. But at a certain point, I'm like, why does that matter if you're not Like trying to work on who your audience is.
0: It seems like there's like a huge disconnect between the people making those decisions and the people having to uh, then actually carry out the labor of putting the concerts on. In that respect,
1: yeah, absolutely. There's like so many, like, like I mean, everyone makes fun of this, I think, but there's just so much music too that's like you know, it tries to get political by being like, this piece is about how global warming is bad because I said it is. And then everyone's like, wow, you are brave. But like, I don't know, like that music (laughs) is mostly getting played in like Brooklyn or similarly like progressive areas that like you're not changing anyone's mind, you know? It's not there. It's like, Mm. like I've seen so many pieces that are like a criticism of Trump. And I'm just like, yeah, no one in this room likes him. Like we're well past that. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird how like we were so close and then it seems like it steered off towards like virtue signaling.
0: Right. Well, that's definitely not unique to the art music world. Like that's <laughs> this is the problem that you see, like in most pop music where, you know, you slap on a few lines about how you're stressed out and suddenly your record is, uh, you know, like, a you know, topical critique of the pressures of mental health in the millennial age and it's like no i just wrote a song about it I was like stressed like everyone does that you know right but it's like less of the fault of the artists i think in a lot of the case and more the fault of like the media that receives it sort of mm-hmm. using topicality to get clicks for them writing about the music which sucks because sure. it's like the artist is getting taken advantage of both like for their social capital and for their actual capital sometimes too so shitty situation um (laughs) switching gears slightly i do want to talk about your record that you put out uh last year was it
1: yeah october of last year
0: got it cool yeah it's called compartments really interesting sounds definitely you know uh the thing that i was like struck with is that it wasn't just like so if i'm understanding correctly it's not just recordings of the percussion but there's actually live audio processing of the material as it's being recorded. Is that right?
1: Yeah. For, yeah. For all the tracks, that's kind of a through line through all of it.
0: How did you come up with the idea for this record and when did you start working on it?
1: So the idea was basically like, I wanted to play more shows on my own terms. That's like something that spring also out of classical music jaded (laughs) as you're kind of like, you know, you play a show when someone asks you to, or you miraculously have enough money to produce something. So I wanted to be able to play stuff that was like more mobile, low budget and everything. So I wanted to start writing music for like really small percussion setups. That's kind of where the album Mm -hmm. name comes from is like I could fit it, the whole setup into like different compartments in my backpack. So it's a very mobile situation because I, you know, I've written music or had music written for me by friends that is really beautiful, but it's for like vibraphone and drum set. And I'm just like, I can't carry that all around with me like i don't have a car um or like you know i've take you know sometimes i get hired to play vibraphone and bring my own instrument but i'm like okay but you're paying for the uber you know like that's part of the fee so when it came to making my own stuff i had to do really really small setups which i like the idea of and i started messing around with it and i just found that i was having a hard time writing interesting music uh for me at least with such little resources so I was like okay I want to start you know including electronics in this to fill it out or whatever but something with electronics is I don't like if they sound the same every single time a lot of music will rely Mm. on like a click track or some or you know even if it's like cued by a pedal which I think is better than a click track but I wanted to do something that was totally different or not totally different but had variation every single time you played it So the way I did this uh, processing software is that every performance will sound different. Like, it'll sound like the same piece. It's not like it's going to be a jarring change, but you can interact with electronics more in that way rather than like, oh, I heard that one ding. That means I got to play this now because that one track is going to happen, which, again, I don't want to, like, get down on people that do approach things in that way it's totally valid and there's some really amazing music like that it's just not the approach that i wanted to take personally
0: and so then once you'd established the idea of having this electronic processing where did you start in terms of building these four pieces out like what what was your process uh in terms of marri- like marrying those two ideas of the uh the percussion and the processing so i used for all the processing I
1: use a software called max msp she mm-hmm. has been around for a while. It's I, I kind of think of it, at least for my purposes, as like a glorified pedal board. <laughs> but you, you open the software and it's just a blank slate. Like there's nothing there. And then you have to like add in, you know, objects like, you know, a little packaged code and different things. And you're just putting together this web of, you know, equations and sounds or whatever. And I was I mean, I'm still learning a lot about that software. It runs really deep and it gets extremely mathy which sometimes i think is fun other times i'm just way too tired (laughs) to think about that the more i got into max msp the more i started thinking like oh well if i can make the software do this that means the instrument can do that and then this composite sound is going to happen so Mm -hmm. it was like kind of concurrently like trying to make cool effects processing things and also like very being very limited like you know, like on the second track on the album is just a flower pot. And I was very like, I'm right. not going to write for anything besides this little flower pot. So that was like, okay, well, what can I do with my computer now that makes this like bearable to listen to?
0: Right. Totally. Yeah. It's, the effect that it has, the example I think of is like in the, in the first track, it becomes clear that you're not actually just playing the percussion itself, but there's this kind of like overtone that starts getting established by Mm -hmm. the various percussion that you're playing and like that starts to be the actual like focus of the music in its own way. Was that, I'm assuming that was intentional on your end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So like the, the dry signal, I guess. of that whole piece is just me playing on three very small gongs laid flat. So they're kind of muted. I'm just playing the same tempo of notes the entire time. Like I think of them as 16th notes, but really in a sense, there's no meter or anything or, mm-hmm. you know, metronome markings, but, you know, I was just playing around with that idea of, like, being super monotonous with those sounds and timbres, and then what I thought was cool was, like, you know, the resonance of it, actually, uh, was more, like, the sound of that was more interesting than me playing fast or something, so the patch, which, uh, that first one, I got help from a friend whose name is, a uh, Max Ardito, Max is very good at Max, so he helped me put this one together that, in the simplest terms kind of acted as a freeze pedal. So every uh-huh. fifteen seconds it would listen to whatever frequency is coming into the microphone and, you know, freeze that and it would fade it in and then repeat that process so it was always crossfading different signals. So there's this like slow, washy drone effect, like kind of overtaking as you were saying, this much more very, very like repetitive and a distant tinkering sound throughout the whole thing
0: what were some of the other similar restrictions that you decided to make for the, uh, the second two or the third and fourth track? So you said that you're limiting it to either small gongs or a flower pot. Mm -hmm. What were the source materials for the other two?
1: So the third track is just for three pieces of wood. And again, that was kind of like me in my rehearsal space being like, okay, what can I like carry around really easily? Mm -hmm. So that whole track is different pieces of wood, like just three of them. They're like planks not like orchestral wood blocks even though you could use those if you wanted and then that's recorded and then played back at varying speeds and sometimes in reverse sometimes forward so it's a similar idea of the first one and getting um like a, just a ton of different sounds happening when i'm actually not really playing anything that interesting becomes much more about the electronics there and then the second one just going backwards that uh, the the Flowerpot only has a microphone or a contact microphone on it. So I'm just like scraping Mm -hmm. that the whole time. And it's recording that while also amplifying the dry signal. And then the recording kind of goes on and off. And while it's like in like the waveform is existing in a buffer, uh, a granular synth is running through it and just kind of reading random parts of the sound file. So that starts building up and kind of glitching a little bit uh, intentionally. And then the only other thing really happening there is, One of the routes for the... Because you can, like, take a microphone and send it through different sets of effects. So the contact mic was sent through a very, very, like, wet and big reverb signal. So there's some, like... Kind of sounds like bombs going off in the distance on it, but that's just me very, very lightly tapping the microphone. Like, if you tap it, like, hard at all, like, not even, like, you know, whacking it, but just, like, too hard, it's just this really anticlimactic, like, sound... But if you just like barely get it to know that you're even there, it's just that what I think is like a really cool like boom that like goes on kind of forever. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm glad that you made the analogy of like bombs going off because definitely the second track is like a pretty stressful listen. Like it's a very uncomfortable sounding <laughs> piece of music. Um, That's fair. But yeah. did you kind of go? Were you just kind of like exploring the all of this on a sort of technical? musical level, or did you have some sort of emotional or evocative effect that you were going for at the, at the end stage of, uh, of the process?
1: It definitely started from the musical part, or like the technical part of just kind of like, what can I make happen with this? Cause that just like fascinates me on a baseline level of like, how big can I make this tiny thing sound other than just like, you know, cranking up the volume. But as it developed, like you were saying, it's an uncomfortable listen. Uh, it's kind of dark, I would say. And people will probably hear mm-hmm. this and be like, "How's a piece with a flower pot dark?" But trust me, it kind of is. Um, and so I, I think I at least like there's no like narrative connection anywhere there, but I did lean into that aesthetic for sure.
0: For each piece, did you eventually sort of find an aesthetic lane that you like to lead in, lean into, or was it more of a uniform approach that you were taking in order to make it a, a cohesive album?
1: yeah they're the effects of them are pretty different. I was trying to like make different things happen. The only one that was like super not super narrative but had something programmatic at all was the last one because you know there's like a video for it on YouTube that like I'm not in or anything, but it was a video I filmed like th- three or four years ago in Prospect Park of just like it was Fourth of July to set up a camera and let it run and it's a very like mm-hmm. peaceful thing to sit and watch I think, and I wrote the notes, not the electronics part, but I wrote the notes for the Embira piece that, which is the fourth track on the album, uh, while watching that, I kind of always thought of them as companions. Like this was, it was almost like a mm-hmm. soundtrack or score for that still life ish video. Uh, so that one, I actually had like some sort of emotional connection to of like those two things fit together. And actually the music didn't come first, nor did the electronics. It was actually a visual inspiration, that kind of superseded everything. Uh, so, and I'm actually most personally attached to that track as a result.
0: Do you, I, you said that you do you did film scoring. You have one in the works now. Uh, do you mm-hmm. find that like visual stimulus can generally is very inspiring for you to to come up with music secondarily, or is that sort of? A- oh, for
1: sure. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's not like I always use it, but I very much like doing it. I like this way better because it's just more of... I mean, I do love, you know, collaborating with people. I'm happy to, like, work on a film score for my friends and whatnot. But it's kind of cool to just, like, sit with it yourself and be like, these are how these two things go together. When sometimes, you know, I'll, like, try to do a film score and I just totally miss what the director was going for. Which is fine. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like I get offended about that or anything. But it's just like, oh, man, I thought I wrote something cool. And it's like objectively wrong. So I like having a visual stimulus in this way of like just my relationship with it. Like I'm sure if someone else wrote music after seeing that video, it would probably sound totally different or maybe not. I don't know. But having it be Mm -hmm. very, you know, self-contained like that made it a much more personal connection than some of the others, which were admittedly just kind of like, oh, what cool sounds can I make? (laughs)
0: Is that something that you'd like to explore further in future releases, that idea of having like a, a visual component paired with the music, or is that mm-hmm. something that is unique to that particular track?
1: I'd like to, yeah, because I also have gotten into um, Max MSP, the software I use, has a component called Jitter, which one of the things Jitter can do is do live processing with videos. So I've actually performed music from this album in a way where like, videos have taken since recording. They'll like morph in different ways based on what I'm playing. Like the microphone will Mm -hmm. listen to it and like run a pixelator through it in a certain way or something, uh, which I think enhances it. I thought it was pretty cool. So I'd like to keep doing that. I do like there being different like multimedia aspects to something so long as it makes sense. You know, I never want to force it being like doing a video just because you can. But I I mean, I do enjoy that being a part of the process. So I definitely say that's a strong possibility.
0: What's the experience like playing this material live? I know that you mentioned that one of your goals was to have it set up so that it's not going to be precisely the same every time you perform it. Do you feel like you've successfully done that, that the live performances are are different than the recorded ones?
1: For sure. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I think like you can tell which one I'm playing is pretty obvious, you know, but like the first track, for instance, that effect will run until I stop playing. And the way it's written out, like, Mm. I have a notated version. I don't use it, but, you know, other people have asked to look at the music, so I made it. You can, you know, stay on one pattern of notes. Like, the second thing that happens event-wise in that piece is a pattern of seven notes, kind of. And you can stay on that indefinitely. So sometimes I'm just like, okay, I need to play, like, a 20-minute set. I only want to play two pieces. I'm going to play a 10-minute version of this piece. Right. I did a talk at NYU not too long ago. Where I was like kind of like showing my work and stuff to the current students, and I told them I was like, I'm gonna do this piece really quick. I'm doing a five minute version because I didn't see a point in them sitting through the 10 minute version. The third one I'm still working on, the electronics, the wood block piece, to make it more variable. Uh, the way the processing works is it would sound different based on what pieces of wood you're using, but the events still happen at the same time. All the others, mm-hmm. like the second one is totally open. And then the last track, I actually have this, like, you know, r- very redundant equation built in. And on the, like, when, you, when you're performing with a max patch, you can make a visual interface for it called the presentation mode, where you can just see what you want to see. And I have this little bar that I slide back and forth, and it'll that'll change how long the piece will last, because it's just all these equations run to all the variables and the electronics. And so... I have it set up where if it's like you scroll it all the way one way it'll be five minutes and then all the way the other way it'll be 15 minutes and at the end of that the sound will you know fade out and terminate but I at least like have something set up and you could do that to like a million minutes you know there's no limit to it I just kind of like failed out like I don't think it should ever be shorter than this or longer than that sort of thing but yeah I've figured out different ways to be like it will be different every time as opposed to like a lot of music that I was, you know, working with in school, which was like, you play this measure, and then you play this measure, and then you play that measure, and so on and so forth, Uh, because that's what I was trying to get away from.
0: You mentioned that some people have asked to see the notation for these pieces. Has anyone else tried performing them, to your knowledge, or is it just like a curiosity thing?
1: It's been a curiosity thing so far, because it's mostly been composers and not percussionists asking to see it. I feel like there's definitely a camp of percussionists that would really be into it and then an opposite camp that thinks it's like the worst thing ever just because it's pretty contrary to like the very masculine music that often exists in percussion land where, you know, a standard recital might just include like super loud drums the whole time, which that's that's fine. But um, yeah, it'd definitely be polarizing, I think, in that sense. But yeah, no one that I know of has tried performing it. The music's not actually hard. Like, it's t- from a technical standpoint, it's pretty easy. The fourth one's a little, the Mbira one's a little tricky because the polyrhythms get a little hairy. But once you get a handle on that, there's not much to think about. Yeah, I'd be happy if someone wanted to. Um, I'm not, I'm definitely not protective of it in that way. But yeah, no other performances yet.
0: Obviously, things are in a pretty weird place right now in terms of getting other music off the ground but had you been working on any any sort of follow-up to this record or any other kind of solo work in the you know in mm-hmm. the wings
1: yeah nothing is like really landed like to myself yet you know I try to write pretty often like you know that's something I do every time I go to my rehearsal space is just like mess around with different sounds and try to find something that I want to work with and there's nothing where I'm like all right this is it as soon as coronavirus is over. I'm going to book a gig and play it. But I have tried to just like keep learning more and more about um, like the software I use Max, but also uh, Ableton Live. I've been super late to the party and getting any sort of grasp on that. And it's pretty cool. Like there's some cool stuff in there. So I've been throwing some tracks together, not for any particular reason, but like experimenting with the audio effects in Ableton and then like, you know, throwing everything back into logic because the Ableton, uh, what is it? The arrangement view, I think it's called. It just breaks my brain. I can't do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We've, we've talked, I think previously about how like, it's definitely way more intuitive for like, you know, it's like a machine built for DJs and for dance production. And it makes a lot of sense under those circumstances, Mm -hmm. but trying to approach it, approach like that way of viewing like recorded music if you're trying to do something else is it's definitely takes like a, a while to get used to what are, what are the most like exciting things that you've found out of like how to do like what, what's been the most inspiring part of learning how to use Ableton live? Well, kind of how you mentioned like
1: it works, the functionality of it works well for DJs. Like I'm definitely not a DJ, but I do like being able to have all these different sounds that I can just like click a button and they start going and being like, Oh, where does this sound like together? You know, because you know just it's so much faster than it does in other softwares, like I mentioned, the audio effects are just really cool. Like um yeah and there's like the I feel like they're all just kind of upped their game in comparison to Logic and stuff. Um I- I'm very loyal to Logic, but I feel like every software has its main perk. Ab- Ableton has like some really cool like their reverbs I think go way deeper. Um there's this one effect called Auto Pan that I'm just obsessed with is all it is is just like kind of a stutter effect that you can do a few different variations with. But I think it's like the coolest mm. sound and sort of like how I wrote this record of just like, Oh my gosh, now that I know I can make this sound, I'm going to write music that sounds like this, you know, just like exploring those possibilities. There's also a thing called max for live. Cause Ableton actually owns max now. It didn't always that way, mm. but max is made by a company called cycling 74, which at some point I, not going to try to guess what year it was, but Ableton purchased them. Or if Ableton has a parent company, I don't actually know. And so now you can make plugins for Ableton on Macs and then put those into Ableton. And so there's this whole new level of, you know, stuff that you can create for it. Uh, And I'm not good at that part at all. It's still pretty over my head, but that's something that, you know, since I have the time to learn some new things, I'm trying to Find the right YouTube rabbit holes to crawl down.
0: Well speaking of time, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I thought this was a great conversation, you know, technical issues sure. aside at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining.
1: Yeah, thanks, dude. Thanks for having me. And I'll talk to hopefully you. Hopefully see you in person soon.
0: <laughs> yes, hopefully sooner rather than <laughs> later. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Adam, for joining me. You can find Adam's music as well as his blog at adamholmesmusic.com You can find more episodes of the podcast on the iTunes podcast app or at soundcloud.com slash lamniforms dash sounds and you can follow me on Twitter at lamniforms underscore or on Instagram at iankcorey more episodes soon until next time.